Hello and welcome to the Event Lab podcast, your window into the events conversation, brought to you by Hirespace. This episode, we have seven minutes with Karina Bauer, the CEO of IMEX Group, as she discusses herself, the events industry, and IMEX ahead of their Frankfurt event this month. Events are very wasteful. Mm. Um, we have to, as an industry, be honest about that and deal with it because our delegates of the future are just not going to put up with it. Then, two venue experts from the Higher Space team are back on the podcast as Jake and Kate share their hot venue tips. And it is ginormous. In total, it's going to be over 260,000 square feet. So it's massive. That is massive. Yeah. But first, a culture divide. Regional museums face cuts while those in the capital get more funding. Keen to network but scared to go. A study reveals millennial networking habits. And is the royal family good for the events industry? On the panel this week, Ed Poland is joined by Sam Allen and Charlotte Gentry for the News Digest. Good evening, everyone. Hi, Ed. Hi. Good evening, Charlotte Gentry. How are you doing, Ed? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for asking. Good evening, Sam Allen, a.k.a. MC Sam Allen. Yo, yo, (laughs) yo. Yo, how are you both? Fabulous, thanks. Bit of a wet and rainy, but, you know, great. We need it for the gardens, as we always say, so... We've got some good stories today. I want to start with a question which came from one of our listeners, came from Rachel... I wonder why Rachel is asking this now. Can't possibly think. But the question is, is the royal family good for the UK events industry? Firstly, on behalf of the News Digest team, I'd like to congratulate (laughs) Meghan and Harry on the arrival of their son, Archie, Harrison, Mountbatten, Windsor, baby. Um, I think the brand of the royal family is absolutely great for the UK industry. I think there's probably a flip side to it, depending on what events are going on. But we, you know, we see huge economic impact from having a royal family. I think having done a tiny bit of research, uh, you know, their net contribution to the UK economy is something around £1.5 billion. So in terms of what they generate is obviously much, much more. But you know, when you look at the costs and what have you, they're bringing people into the United Kingdom. We run, you know, you think about these really big events that we run. We do states, stately events like no other country in the world, which then has to give a really, really good advertisement for us as, a, as an industry, I think. They're also terribly kind and generous and they welcome us into their homes. They're small insignificant little houses that they have you know they open the state rooms in buck house um spencer house um there are plenty of um examples where we can uh, hire space in these beautiful beautiful architectural phenomenon so which is lovely and um yeah i, I agree with sam i think they're a, i think they're a great asset to to the uk in general and i think it's been quite interesting that um william and harry have really added a completely different dimension to the royal family have either of you ever been to an event or even put even better, put on an event in in Bee Palace or or Windsor. I've been round Spencer House on a number of occasions, which is a very beautiful place. Um, and I'm proud to say that Prince Harry once threw a glass of red wine down my top. 
And I nearly belted him until I realised who it was and I turned round. Don't be belting him. <laughs> was it deliberate? No, he was very drunk, actually. Um, and yeah. I'm also Allegedly, quite, alle- obviously. Allegedly. <laughs> allegedly quite refreshed. Um, and I'm also quite proud to say that I've watched Princess Eugenie do a head plant over a sofa. I've worked with historic royal palaces um, and, you know, again, what a great organisation in terms of the offering and the flexibility of some of the, the venue spaces. They truly are unique and, and unique to the UK um, and a real slick operation as well in terms of trying to balance that whole public versus business. Um, they do really, really well. Um, I skate a lot every Christmas at the Royal Palaces <laughs> from a sort of consumer personal point of view. Um and so yes, I think let's you know, I'm a true royalist, so let's keep these keep these royal families. And as you said, there are other links to that that, you know, perhaps in terms of the you know, raising awareness for certain issues means more events to raise awareness mm. for certain issues that they're ambassadors for. So I think they're a great thing for our industry. Long live the Queen. <laughs> So that's a pretty resounding yes. I've made a mental note to ask uh, Event Lab producer George to uh, invite Harry onto the, the, the Event Lab podcast to defend himself against Charlotte's <laughs> accusations here. I think it's only right we give him the, the right of reply. I'd be delighted to have the conversation with him. I wonder what he'd be like on the News Digest. Oh, hilarious, I think. Absolutely hilarious. I think he'd be a great asset. And also, you know, discussion discussing, as his brother was telling him, the um, association membership of the Sleep Deprivation Society, mm. which he's now just a fully-fledged member of. So, I guess it's important because we, 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 we kind of talked about, I mean, no, no one wants to talk about Brexit here or, or anywhere else, but the importance of, of the UK, you know, having a strong brand and making sure that it's staying incredibly relevant and... Maybe maybe the, the royal family is just is just another part of that. Anything which gives gives a boost to that UK brand is is a good thing. Yes. We have spoken also about how important it is that London has amazing cultural institutions and amazing. museums. It's yes. something we've spoken mm. about in the past. Again, we it have. kind of ties to the same thing. The UK being alluring and having an amazing brand. And we read today in, or not today, recently though, in The Guardian, this was a article saying that England's museums, so primarily outside London, regional museums are really, really struggling at the moment. On a cliff edge, it says, it says austerity cuts imposed by central government um, says the Guardian remember uh, anyway have caused a, a crisis in England's cultural sector outside London with regional museums increasingly opening only part-time and cutting staff if we are to say that museums and culture are, are really really important in making sure that the UK is a fantastic global destination is this a problem is this a bad sign I think it's a really big struggle for them um i think i think the challenge is as well is that when you are based and you live in london you become very very london centric and i think that there are some amazing cities um in and around the uk which have access to phenomenal um artwork um amazing artifacts beautiful um places to to see and explore such as bath such as bristol such as um, York, you know, have got amazing, or Canterbury, amazing cathedrals, amazing museums, amazing things to go and look at. And if they're being squeezed, you know, the, the curation side of it alone, actually, they're not going to be able to curate as many new interesting pieces to be able to showcase. I mean, working with museums anyway, within the event sector is not 
really the easiest thing to do often because you're hugely restricted with your get-in times, you're hugely restricted with your supplier lists, you're, you know, it, it's quite a confined experience as it is and now they're being squeezed financially and they're not getting as much money that, as they mm. as they once had. I think it's going to not be, it's going to be far from easy for them. I guess as much about getting people to cities and, you know, if, 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 a, if a city is competing for a big global, uh, big global event, it's important that that city is is, is, is going to be brilliant and, and, and interesting for, for delegates and people coming to visit, right? I think, yeah, absolutely right, Ed. And I think Charlotte's got some very valid points. I think it would have been interesting in this article to have a slightly broader um, insight and maybe some uh, conversations from those institutions outside of London, those museums that are actually really doing well. I was, um, or I am lucky to be the the chairman of the judges of the CHS Awards and the shortlist came out last week for those and there are a lot of independent venues and museums that are really pushing themselves and they are actually demonstrating best practice but there are more that aren't is what you're saying, I think, Charlotte, that, you know, there needs to be a degree of education with it, you know, maybe via things like the museum's trusts and the museum association in terms of how to you know, be a bit more flexible, but also not just talking about corporate events. Why not being a bit more open? You know, we're all looking for destinations and new experiences. And we've just heard on the uh, what well, we're, we're here on the podcast today about new venue openings, new restaurants. So again, there's you know there's a diversification there, and also looking at those successful London event uh, museums and venues and attractions, and recreating that outside. I mean, I think you know, I mean, I, I guess what we're talking about probably is smaller museums. I mean, I think there's a perhaps um, level of um, a lack of commercialism with some of the museums out there because they've never really had to be, you know, that's really... not just the small museums. I, know. I, can, <laughs> yeah, I, I know. can assure you of that. <laughs> This article suggests there's a kind of bias for outside land. So it says just two of the 16 English cultural institutions that are funded by central government are based outside London. So those that, the, the, the Royal Armouries in Leeds and the National Museums, uh, Liverpool. Mm. Um, I, I guess it's saying that there's a, a bias on London. Is that is that mirrored in the events world? I mean, that's not entirely surprising as well, based on the fact that government's based in London. And if we ever needed to see a complete disconnect between government and the rest of the country we only need to look at what the current political situation looks like and so you know are they just making those choices based on the fact they think everybody comes to London but nobody's bothered to go to it's not just it's 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 fact and whilst you you know I go back and say that there's marketing and there's a lot of work being done in all the regions mm. of the city we've got to face facts that London is the top tourist destination so from a, a investment point of view and has the biggest mass of cultural institutions in, in the city. Fact, so Edinburgh, in the country, so. Edinburgh actually tops London internationally as a bigger tourist destination than London. Interestingly enough, isn't Edinburgh the biggest in the it's world? It's almost it's like or? number two in the world or something absolutely. But it's loopy. a devolved government, so we're talking about the, the yeah. you know the England here. So it's kind mm. of a different situation in terms of where their funding comes from. But these people, I think, you know, they've got association. They've got an association. They need to be talking to mm. some of these, you know, excellent museums and seeing and, and working together. Brilliant advice. Thanks, guys. That's great. Charlotte, we've got you here. We know you love millennials. You have lots to say on millennials. 
Um, we have spoken about millennials before. Favorite don't, topic. Don't worry, we're not going to talk about millennials too much. But there was a piece of research done. I think the meeting show. I thought you could help us make sense of this. It says networking is valued more highly by millennials than any other group. So these are the numbers. It says overall, fifty nine percent of the participants of this survey that the the meeting show have done regarded networking events as important part of their job. But that figure rose to. 85% amongst 18 to 30-year-olds. There's another stat I'm going to hit you with, but first, is that surprising? No, not really. Um, I think it's the easiest way to... Uh, well, first of all, at that age, you've got a, sig- a huge amount of energy um, to get out and go to as many different industry events as you can, to meet as many different people as you as you can. Um, and it's the way that you largely share information apart from through your telephone. So um, you've got y- twice as much energy as me. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> She's actually a secret millennial. <laughs> I'm a secret millennial. I'm hiding. Um, but yeah, no. I mean, it's not. It's not surprising. I think that they. Um, understand the need to to get out there um as you as you progress in your career you kind of when you're slightly older you feel like you've done a lot of that you know what they're all about you've been through the mill and therefore it's time for other people coming through um through the ranks to actually sort of enjoy more of that i think i mean i've got the most amazing i'm going to shout out to nicola root my bd manager who is amazing she goes to the opening of an envelope and literally is out and about every single day of the week. And um, she's miraculous. I do not know how she has the time and the energy to, to do this, but she does it entirely unprompted by me. I've, I've met Nicholas I've met many times. She's not normally one of the last people at the event. Yeah, well, well, exactly. She, she doesn't get impressive. home. <laughs> she doesn't go. She takes networking to an entirely different level. Um, and, um, you know, I think it's hugely admirable. And now she's started taking more of even <clears throat> of our younger team with her um, who absolutely love the events that, you know, that are that are there to be enjoyed. So no, it doesn't surprise me. Um, I think that um, on a daily basis, everyone, as you're younger, you're more inclined to have communications via email rather than picking up the phone to people. So the interaction perhaps you're having on a daily basis potentially a bit less. It slightly drives me nuts that no one's calling anybody anymore on the phone. Instead, they're hiding behind email all the time. So getting out there and networking and putting being face to face is a um, is an important thing to do. Let me hit you with the next stat. So despite all this, it's, <laughs> it says that even though the, the younger generation, millennials or whatever, are the ones that want to go to the, the most networking events, 85% of them are averse to going on their own. They have to go with someone else. Why is that? Is that tr- That's not true, is it? Well, yeah, I think just, um, you know, uh, maybe that explains why there's a mad mass exodus um, in the younger <laughs> members of my team at around 5.30 every afternoon they're all going with each other um oh confidence I'm guessing confidence uh, not wanting to walk I mean I suppose as you get as you get a bit older as well I have the ability to just think stuff it I don't really care I'm just going to walk straight into a group of people and say hi this is who I am who are you what do you do what's your name where do you come from when you're 25 you probably have less confidence to do that because you know and therefore it's easier to walk into that room with you know a plus one with someone else. Sam? I think that's a sh- surprising stat in one respect and un- unsurprising in another. I think it's always nice to go anywhere with somebody else. But at the same time, I've, I've worked and done some training with uh, a client and two of my 
two of the sales team are millennials. And the first thing they asked when we did a, a sort of session on what they wanted to learn and they wanted to develop their networking skills. Again, you know, you used to see those type of events that were run by the meetings associations. And as much as you may or may not know um, much about networking, they always were the best networking events. Going to a session on how to network, because you could take the mickey if it was a bit of an outrageous thing to do. From an, you know, from an MC point of view, it's one of the first things that I ask, you know, how are we getting these people to network and, and engage with each other to get the best out of the event and the, and the experience they're having? Um, we talked about it. The the two gents I work with say they like to sort of team up. Um, I sort of said, you know, maybe you'd you'd reach a broader church if you split up when you go. So again, what are they doing once they're there? Are they splitting up? You know, because there's a difference between networking and going for a drink with your colleagues on the company expense. So again, there's lots of questions. I think that, you know... And, and that we, actually is my question is, you know, it, as you say, it's one thing going, taking a friend, but if you're just going to go and stand in the corner and, you know, drink cocktails and not actually network at all, then that's a total waste of time. But, you know... Sounds perfect. Um, yeah, I know. Here, here, are a few, here are a few other stats. Uh, just for, So uh, midweek events are the most popular, apparently. So 69% of everyone, not just the millennials, 69% prefer events held on Wednesdays. Uh, more than half said they would be willing to travel no more than an hour in terms of the format of events, 53% that paired or group activities was the most popular. But of the 31 to 45 age group, it was appointment-based networking was prepared. And then for planners over 46, seat rotation at dinner. Oh, wow. Is that because you're bored of the person you might get stuck next to? Quite possibly. <laughs> I think it's interesting that they, they're calling it appointment-based networking. Um I would call appointment-based events not, appointments not, yeah. and <laughs> not I would call networking networking. And again, I think we're losing what is networking. I think maybe that's another conversation for a different News Digest and another podcast. Mm. What actually is networking mm. and what does that mean to each generation that you know networking isn't about developing sales leads and opportunities. There's mm. a whole big broader uh, you know thing with networking. So I think that's quite interesting. Seat rotation at dinner. I don't think I have ever been to an industry event where I've rotated. I'm delighted to say I've never been to a seat rotation dinner either. No. I, I, that just sounds like a lot of hard work. Um, 70%. But then, you know, this is planners aged 46 and over. And of course, we okay. don't go anywhere yeah. near that category. <laughs> oh, no, Obviously, exactly. we're nowhere near that. We're much nearer the millennials, Charlotte and I. <laughs> totally. We will come back in, in, in many, many years when we can comment. <laughs> in comment many, many years. Yeah, many, many years. Right, we are there. Thank you very much, Sam. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much, Charlotte. Thanks, Ed. Who's chairing the News Digest next week? I'm at IMEX. I'm at IMEX too. And so am I. Uh-oh. Uh, Look out, folks. This could be interesting. If anybody would like to producer. apply for the role, please can they let our producer, George, know, ASAP, if they'd like to come and chair the yeah. podcast because it's going to be quiet in the studio. It is. dot com. send your pictures to George. I want to host the new... Die, just trust me, you don't. <laughs> Thanks very much, guys. See you at See Frankfurt. You next time. Yeah. See you in Frankfurt. Bye. Bye. Ed is sitting down with Karina Bauer now, the CEO of the IMEX Group. Karina has had an impressive career and been an active member of the meetings and events industry, growing IMEX into a global event as part of the founding team. Welcome, 
Karina Bauer, CEO of IMEX Group. Thank you very much. How are you, Karina? I'm great. Very good to be here. IMEX is in two weeks? Just less, yes. Just under two weeks. How the prep, how's the prep going? Everything's going really well, thank you. Yeah, everything's um, looking good for this year. Busy times. All looks very exciting. Absolutely, yeah. It'll be a big show. So, um, it'll, and lots of new things. So, we're excited. Karina, we're going to do seven minutes of questions. Okay. We're going to talk a little bit about you, a little bit about Karina, a little bit about the events industry. Excellent. A little bit about IMEX. Great. A little bit about our Event Lab content theme at the moment, which is partnerships, sponsorships and sales. Imagine you know a fair bit about that for IMEX. Absolutely. We um, fo- like to focus on those things. Fantastic. So, Karina, going to start with some easy ones. Okay. Karina Bauer, what do you prefer, canapes or bowl food? Canapes. How come? I like lots of different tastes. Try lots of different things. Exactly. Karina, what's the best event you've ever been to? Well, probably, I've been to lots of good events, but I went to an absolutely awesome event about a week and a half ago, which was on a snowy mountain. Lovely. Um, And um, it combined really good education, really experiential education or immersive um, with skiing. So it was ideal. I going to say, it sounds like IMAX until the skiing bit. I know. And you add in the skiing bit and it's literally the perfect event. So that was, I'll give them a shout out. That was the Incentive Summit Europe. Incentive Summit Europe. Should IMAX have skiing element? If we could do a skiing element in IMAX, all my dreams would have come true. (laughs) Can I ask you the worst event you've ever been to? I'm not going to name check, but I would say the worst events I've been to have been kind of, in my mind, a dark, almost like in dungeons. And events that just have sessions back to back, like keynote presentations, pretty dull, no respite. Um, Been to a few events over the years like that. And... um, I don't remember any, any content from any of them, but I remember having being pretty bored. Great. Karina, you've built one of the, the biggest, most important events brands in, in the entire world, almost from scratch. Done pretty well. But what's the one piece of advice? You go back to the start of your career. What's the one piece of advice you'd give yourself? Um, that was uh, that's a hard one. I think... Um, Having the real confidence in your convictions, even when you're new in the industry. So now that's kind of easy. But when you're really new in the industry or new in business, really having that confidence, um, I think, and and having that confidence in your ideas. The other thing, if I was to start a business again, I would be absolutely militant in putting together the processes and how we were going to work and how things are done within the business, because doing that retrospectively um, is really really hard work um and the other thing I would probably do is just plan a bit better and like set forward goals and and objectives and not be scared about you know setting your one year five year ten year plans yeah it's easy just to dive I can certainly relate easy just to dive straight into stuff exactly and I'm always been very good at sort of diving straight in but actually um, learning to take a step back and plan is really important Completely agree. So moving slightly on to the, the kind of partnership, sponsorship and sales stuff, I mean, you must have built a phenomenal amount of incredibly productive business relationships over your, your time doing IMEX and in your, your previous roles as well. What do you think is the most kind of important steps in establishing brilliant thriving business relationships? I think obviously, you know, the heart of it is the relationship and trust, developing trust with people. But really, that's about asking the other person or business, you know, what what they need, what's important to them, and um, being and articulating what's important to you and finding that common ground, and then being authentic about that and and sticking to that and being a really trustworthy partner, um, and doing things that are going to benefit both sides genuinely. Completely 
agree. Yeah, and you must have seen you must have seen the events world kind of change change a lot in in all your years at IMAX. What are the big kind of things that you think are different about the events world today than perhaps say twenty years ago? I think that um, concept of the experience, but also the concept of understanding that events are there not just to serve a basic um, logistics role, but actually are there to serve a business's strategic goals. Um, I think that understanding has really developed over the past 20 years. Um, and we're still um, going through that process of development and understanding. But I think that has been a real change, that focus on events being a strategic part of a business process, a business goal. Um, and the other thing that I've seen is kind of the professionalization of the industry. We are still, if you compare us to, you know, other large industries, we're still uh, relatively young. Mm. And so that kind of professionalization, people understanding that, you know, you can um, start your career in this industry uh, mindfully and actually, you know, learn about events and learn how to do those properly and go to university for that and then develop um, your professional qualifications. I think that's something that's really changing and, f- and, and improving the industry as a result. Totally agree. But events is a part of any business mix, any modern marketing mix, brand building, events is a fundamental part. I think I totally agree on exactly. that. Sustainability is another thing. I mean, it seems to me this is so much such a big conversation now. So many people talking about sustainability. We discussed this in the podcast last week, actually. IMEX are, are genuinely kind of leading the debate on sustainability in the events industry. We spoke a, a bit about the, 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 the pledges that exhibitors, the exhibitors make. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I think for us, um, you know, we have built our sustainability programs at both the shows and for our business over the past 16 years. So we look at every single aspect of our shows um, from how the waste is being sorted back of house to make sure we can genuinely recycle it, repurpose it, um, make sure it's not going to landfill to the type of materials we're using. So um, trying to eliminate and reduce um, a single use plastic, but not just single-use plastic you know what are our signs made of can we take plastic out of those can they be reused over a number of years um, this year we won't be printing delegate bags for people um, because people bring their own bags anyway so why create that additional waste to looking at the food miles of the food that's served um, in the cafe so we try to look at every single level of both the shows and our business um, and improve that sustainability. Events are very wasteful. Mm. Um, We have to, as an industry, be honest about that and deal with it because our delegates of the future are just not going to put up with it. Makes sense. And is the UK, where, where does the UK stand in, in leading on the sustainability, or where does it stand in in, in, in terms of what it's doing? I think um, if you look at the Northern European countries like um, Scandinavia um, or Central European countries like Germany, we're not at their levels yet because th- they really have taken a stance on a political level to eliminate um, landfill, for example, um, to reduce uh, or to change energy uses. So, for example, we're able to power the whole of our Frankfurt show all of the electricity through renewables I'm not sure and and a venue in the UK would be able to say better than me I'm not sure if that's possible here or not Karina who would play you in a movie of your life well, I have thought about this one very hard. Um, so because I'm quite short of stature is how I would put it, I would love somebody with very long legs to play me. So somebody like Elle McPherson. But if we couldn't have her, then I'd settle for Kylie. 
I mean, Kylie's a, <laughs> Kylie's a pretty strong choice. She is a strong choice, but she's the same height as me, so I think um, that's a fair choice. Karina, it's been fantastic talking to you. Is there anything you, you want to you, you want to tell our listeners about IMEX? Um, just that you know, it will be another great show. It is the meeting point for the industry um, at this time of year, um, and in uh, it's for the global industry, but obviously in Europe. Really excited about a lot of um, new things that we have. So we've got a new discovery zone, some really interesting tech and cool sort of um, experience features as well. Um, things that people can um, go and play with and do, um, and we've got a new new IMEX Park as well in our food course. So there are a few real fun things and we're trying to bring that idea of an experience into the trade show. Um, so it'd be great to get people's feedback on that as well. well IMEX is a, is a stunning event. It's been fascinating talking to you. Thank you very much. It's been great to be here. Thanks very much. Up next, Jake and Kate from the Venue Expert team are here to share their insider tips for the hotspots in London this summer with some exciting new venues. Welcome to another episode of Venue Talk. Um, I'm delighted to be joined today by Kate, one of the Venue Experts at Highspace. Hello. How are you doing? Good. First pod. I'm excited. Yeah. First time yeah. on the pod. Well, um, yeah, we've just got a couple of venues to talk to you guys about today. Kate, you're going to kick us off. Yeah, I am. And I'm kicking us off all the way in North Greenwich today um, with a brand new venue. And this is very hot off the press. um, So it doesn't actually open until September. So at the time of recording this, um, it's still being built, which is super exciting. Um, And it is the latest venue from Venue Lab. And it's called Magazine. Um, And they are the group that bring you Shoreditch Gardens, Printworks... Um, landing 42 um, and it is slap bang on the Greenwich Peninsula so you come out of the O2 and it's just on the right you've got the driving range crazy golf um, so it's pretty cool Um, and it is essentially a purpose-built venue um, by architect Nissan Richards um, who is the architect behind the V&A Lecture Theatre and Seoul Opera House Um, and it is ginormous in total it's going to be over 260,000 square feet so it's massive. That is massive. Yeah. Um, and it's very simple design. They want it to be like a black box. Right. It's quite warehousey. It's quite industrial, mm. which is really great because it kind of reflects the area really okay. well. Because North Greenwich has always been quite an industrial bit of Greenwich. Yeah. Um, so it's going to look pretty cool. Is it going to be sort of a, a, a dry hireable place then? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it's right. dry hire. Um, the catering... Um, is exclusively done by Moving Venue, who we know quite well at High Space as well. Um, So that's exciting. And the production is done by Vibration Group. Great. Um, So it's going to be really, really cool. What sort of events are they going to be um, sort of uh, focusing on, do you think? Well, they're kind of pushing for um, big brand events, uh, but you could do award shows, dinners, conferences, expos, um, fashion. um, And they're also, I think there's going to be a massive push on ticketed events because enemy have already picked it up and they've done a piece on it so i think it'll be big for gigs oh, and cool. things like that oh, really? um, yeah. which is also good because obviously you've got the o2 so how, how many people can fit in there if you... um well the max capacity inside is three thousand. um but if you're including the outside it's a further seven thousand people oh what? so it's going to be huge <laughs> amazing yeah definitely um so essentially 
you walk in and the reception um, has floor to ceiling windows, um, which has got amazing views of Canary Wharf and the River Thames. Um, and it, that's going to be fab for pre-dinner drinks, mm. um, the exhibition, any informal catering. Um, and then you kind of walk through into the main space, um, where it's eight metre ceiling. So it's yeah massive um it's quite plain but i think that's why it's going to work so well for brands yeah. and for gigs so you can kind of decorate it however you like um and that'll be the plenary space for conferences and anything like that um it also has a mezzanine um which will be great for vips and any overflow um and but i think their big selling point is going to be the outdoor space yeah sounds um, huge yeah it's massive so they call it the showground um and um i think it will be great if anybody wants to do a festival or anything like that mm. and they also talk about doing firework displays after like awards dinners or something so that's quite oh, unique because be i don't think many venues can yeah. do that and it also has the iconic pylon um, which is quite um, an iconic piece of art in North Greenwich and it's essentially an upside down pylon it looks like it's been thrown out of the sky um, and it's done by um, a guy called Alex um, and it um, is quite a good reference to the history of the site because it as I said it was such a industrial area and it's like one of the largest gas and oil works in Europe oh, wow. and it's kind of a nod to that um, but you have access to that as well with this venue um, so that'll make an amazing backdrop for an event um, but yeah as I say like big put I think it could kind of cater everything um, it is on the large scale of things. Sounds huge. Um, yeah. Sounds amazing, though. It is really, really cool. Um, Down in your ends as well, in Greenwich. Exactly. So, you know, I'm slightly biased because I'm a Greenwich girl, born and, <laughs> born and bred. But, um, you know, it'd be great to get people to come to North Greenwich. Yeah. It's it's like seven minutes from London Bridge on the Jubilee line. Yeah, yeah, it's not far. It's, it's not, not as far, far at all. Not as far as people think. Eh? No, definitely. And even if you're going the other way to Stratford, if people are coming into Stratford International, it's mm. really not that far. Um, and, you know, you've got, if you need hotels for your guests you've got intercontinental just there if you really want to wow them you could take them to a show at the o2 go see robbie williams or yeah. whatever um if you really want to impress people <laughs> um so yeah i think it's fab and they're doing um shared christmas parties as well this year Super. um and this apres ski theme the prices start at 92 pounds per head oh, wow. which is that's pretty decent good. Yeah, yeah very decent um so yeah i'm super excited our uh, fellow venue expert Ben has been and he is very keen uh, so I can't wait to see it when it's done great well thank you so much that sounds awesome no um, I'm going to take us through very quickly uh, a, a new opening um, in the London Bridge area and so Kate and I both get the train out of London Bridge yep. I think you'd agree Kate bit of a nightmare when you just want to go for a, a quick after work mm -hmm. beer there's not too much uh, about yeah. um, lots of old pubs which are lovely uh, get a bit boring um, so just what the area needs uh, is the brand new Vinegar Yard um, which is a sort of uh, a food court kind of area um, it's on the guys hospital side of, of London Bridge Station um, so you might have seen there's like a there's like a train carriage with enormous mm. red ants crawling out oh, all over yeah, it and yeah. thought what on earth is that um, so yeah Vinegar Yard opened I think in the last month or so um, but it's basically brand new opening um, it used to be a car park so they are kind of redeveloping this car park it will be shut by the end of the year mm. um, so in the meantime they are, are, are using it as this this awesome space um, uh, you know food food court food and drinks um, uh, on top of that there's also uh, sort of a flea market and, and sort of shopping available oh. um, on the weekends so 
Um, just to give you a quick overview of, of, of what it's about, if anyone knows Flatiron Square, um, it's by this, the same guys who, who did that. Um, the red ants um, and a lot of the art, so there's a lot of art inside as well, um, all done by Joe Rush, who is the um, one of the sort of lead artists at, at Glastonbury, so you would have potentially recognised um, the ants from, from, from around Glasgow. Um, yeah, I went there the other night with a few friends. I, I, I saw it yeah, on my way home, um, put it on uh, put it on the Slack channel at work, and then um, thought I'd go and test it out. Um, yeah, just it's just really nice, especially you know with summer coming up. I can imagine um, spending some evenings there, uh, having a few beers after work. Um, yeah, the, the the food's really really good. So we had. We went to Nanny Bill's Burgers, but there's also a place called Baba G's, which you might recognise if you've seen that um, show, the, uh, was it, the Million Pound... A million pound menu. Have you heard of that show on BBC? I, heard, I don't think I've seen it, but I so it, yeah. they were they were on that. Um, and uh, yeah, there's a couple of other vendors as well. So one called In My Grill, which was a, a, a steak place. Oh, I've had that actually. Yeah. Um, so some really really good food. Also um, during the day, gentlemen's baristas who who we know mm. around here. They're, they're they're just around the corner from our office in Borough. Um, they've got a few sites across London as well, um, and they are doing all the coffee. Um, so yeah, definitely head down. Um, in terms of private hire, which I know everyone listening is is uh, is curious about um they will be they will be doing it it's going to be obviously fairly ad hoc with um you know the site being a uh a sort of temporary site um so it's one of those places where you know next year it's literally probably not going to be there um mm. i'd say if you want to have a summer party somewhere new and you're in the kind of london bridge area or in the city area um this could be somewhere that's really really good um they're gonna they're gonna have uh, a smaller space as well um, just off the side, um, which is I'm told up to about 300 people, but the whole site itself can can take to up to about 1500. Um, there's indoor space, there's outdoor space. You know, it's going to be it, it, it's going to be really cool. It's kind of it's quite industrial. You've got the train carriages, you've got you know the yeah. actual train station on the other side. Um, the the views are quite industrial as well. So um, yeah, really really cool space. Um, I went down there the other night, like I said, and can can vouch for it. Um, uh, in terms of uh, what you can actually do with the space, I, I'd say it's a kind of early evening um uh, t- through till kind of uh, yeah through till kind of maybe 10 or something mm. like that the outdoor space will close at nine just there's just there's there's no going around that yeah. you know the, the restrictions yeah there. um but there's plenty of plenty of um indoor space as well um you know background music they, they, they were talking about doing acoustic bands and Ooh, um, that'd be great. yeah that, that kind of stuff um so yeah super super excited there's there's uh there's a prosecco truck Ooh, oh oh so what a dream. Prosecco on tap. Um, oh. Lots of trendy hoppy beers. Um, lots of amazing food. Mm. Um, there's florists. There's um, vintage clothing stores. Um, yeah, it's just well worth a look if you are in the area. Um, so uh, we have got... So Kate and I are fans of Line of Duty. Um, obviously, the last episode has just happened. I sent over Kate a link to... Obsessed with Line of Duty, <laughs> which is a podcast which follows yep. the show. And on Line of Duty, they go through uh, various um, uh, puns on the name. So we thought, with the Venue Talk, we're going to give you an episode of Menu Talk. It's going to take one minute each. <laughs> and this is because we've just both been up for a meal this week. Um, so I went to Sartoria um, in Mayfair. It's um, an Italian restaurant. I'd say it's fairly it's fairly high end. Mm. Um, it's run by the D and D group. We love um, them. And the head chef is a chap called Francesco Mazzei. M A Z E I. I hope I'm pronouncing that okay. Um, basically, I listened to a podcast with Jay Rayner, um, the food critic, and 
he recommended going and having the Frigola, which I'd never mm. even heard of. And it's kind of like a Durham... I think, no, it's like a... Yeah, I think it's like a, a wheat-based... I don't know what it is. Is it uh, a truffle? Mm, yeah, there was truffle, truffle all yeah. over it. Um, it's kind of like a like a really like homely stew. Mm. Um, and yeah, we went and we ordered it and it was absolutely delicious. So if anyone is in the Mayfair area, fancies a fairly high-end meal at an Italian restaurant, I'd definitely recommend nice. it. Definitely. Well, it's on my list now. Anything with truffle, I'm sold. Um, yeah, so I went to Frog in Hoxton, um, which is Adam Handling's um, restaurant. Um, and he um, was on MasterChef The Professionals, I think in like 2013, oh, right. It was quite a long time ago. Um, but he has a couple. He's got one in Common Garden. Um, but yeah, we went to the Hoxton one and we had the six-course tasting menu. Oh, yeah. That's and it enough. was delicious that's so nice the first taste course i've ever had um and it was amazing um again truffle oil like his signature dish is celeriac with a truffle oil cream cheese dates and apple oh it was amazing sounds good um but i really liked it because i'm like i'm not i was a bit scummy like i just come from work (laughs) and like i'm not formal enough for that and but it was it was formal enough to feel special, but everyone was quite relaxed. All the waitresses and waiters, like, they all were wearing normal clothes. Mm. Um, but it still felt special enough because it was an anniversary yeah. dinner as well. Yeah, hey, when so, you walk into a restaurant, you sort of feel a bit out of place. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, like, everyone's, worried. everyone's in vans and trainers. So, oh, it just, great. It, you know, we fit it in fine. Oh, so, amazing. but yeah, really recommend it. Um, and as tasting menus go, um, it was up there. Oh, fab. So, well, yeah. thanks very much. Um, we will leave it there. Um, I think we're running out of time. Mm-hmm. Um, thanks, Kate, for joining. Hope no you enjoyed the first pod. Thanks for having me. Hopefully um, not the last. Yeah, well, we'll see you soon. Thanks, thanks a lot. That was awesome. Good job. Did you like menu talk? I loved menu talk. Can we keep menu talk? Absolutely. That's what the extra two minutes were for. Now, before we go, we are excited to announce that Event Lab 2019 registrations will be opening on the 3rd of June exclusively for pre-registered delegates. You can follow a link in our show notes below to pre-register, which gets you access to exclusive discounts, prizes, and early access to top content. So follow that link and pre-register for Event Lab 2019 tickets now, and make sure you don't miss out. As always, you can find links to everything mentioned in the episode, including those links to pre-register in the show notes below. If you enjoy the show, make sure to rate us on iTunes or your podcast app of choice. You can follow all that we do on Twitter and Instagram using the handle at eventlab underscore online. If you have any questions you'd like to submit to the News Digest or you'd like to get in contact with the show, you can email us at eventlab at hirespace.com. Thanks very much for listening.